I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Know when we're live. Go for it. Welcome back or welcome to the More Train, Less Pain podcast, where we talk about engineering the adaptable athlete. I am your host, Tim Richard. I am joined by my always lovely and wise co-host, Michelle Bolin. How you doing, Michelle? Oh, it's just psyched like to be alive, basically, as always. You know, I get the train what are we today. What are we talking about today? Oh, my favorite thing probably in the whole world to talk about, models and principles and what they're good for. Um, I think I went, you know, I went through like my academic career to the point where they, you know, had to kick me out and say, please don't, don't come back here. You know, there's nothing left. Uh, I was pretty, you're, I was, you're too, you're too old. Get out of the cafeteria. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was pretty bummed about that, but um, you know, then I went to a collegiate, um, excuse me, career at a D1 institution. And then, you know, they took continuing education like very seriously. And then I got to the point where I remember I went to the reckoning events, very sick name, by the way, um, with Pat with Pat Davidson, Doug Kachihan, Bill Hartman. And Bill Hartman gave a whole presentation about, you know, models and principles. And at the time I was like, dude, I have no idea what you're talking about. And to the point where like, I was sitting there and I was like, ah, I don't really see how like this is that like useful. And then fast forward a few months, years later, I was like, wow, that was probably one of the most useful presentations that I've been to. And I had to rewind and be like, wow, this is really what a lot of people are missing and probably what could have fast forward my accumulation of knowledge or um, reduction of what is important and what's not important when I was in school and after school. Uh, so I really had to reflect back and be like, oh, this is the show right here. It's funny. I feel like everyone, everyone has that Bill Hartman story. And I have many where he says something that you kind of think nothing of. And then it just sort of festers in your brain for like months or years. And then all of a sudden you just have this moment of, wow, like that, that was the show. Like that was the most important thing that, you know, maybe I've heard that year. <laughs> Usually it's like a Pat Davison moment for me. Cause I grew up with him, um, you know, as my professor in school. So, well, he maybe pushed me in that right direction, but yeah, it, it always takes, you know, whatever experience that may be, it doesn't have to be him, but you'll always have one of those moments where like, Oh, you're like, this is what I needed five years ago. You were you were like the object that Pat Davidson would throw over goalposts in a strongman training. Is that how you guys got to know one another? Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. It's like, cool. wow, you are perfect. You know, cylinder shaped, <laughs> uh, weight appropriate. Let's see how far you can fly. And I was like, cool. How well can you tuck into a ball? Really well. I can flex like no one's business. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So you've kind of given the background. So let's let's give the listeners kind of a, an operational definition of what you think a model is, why they should care, and then we can kind of go into currently what your model is. Let's do it. Uh, so 
I would define a model as a representation or prototype of a proposed structure. And in the, and what we're really talking about, or at least what I'm going to is in physical training. Um, and it's using an example to follow or imitate regardless of a system. So it basically provides you a pathway or guardrails is probably what I prefer to say of what to do. So it, it supports decision-making through a process. And that process for us, whether we're talking about physical therapy or strength conditioning, or adaptable athlete, plug that, um, is, you know, what's the outcome that we want and how do we work backward, backwards to get there? What are the steps that we have to take? And then along the way, we need to be able to say, am I doing what I think I'm doing? Am I being effective in my strategies? And um, your, your model provides that for you. And then I think what people get confused about the most is a model and principles are very different than strategies and, and methods. Um, strategies and methods, just how you carry out your principles and model and um, your strategy, uh, your models and your principles are basically providing rationales for your decision-making, especially in terms of like exercise selection. Okay. That was a, that was a lot of really fancy SAT and GRE words. So I want to roll, roll things back really quick. So give, just give a concrete example of before we go into your model, one principle and then potentially, you know, one strategy that would result from that principle. Yeah, perfect. All right. So I would say one of my principles is proximal position influences distal movement abilities. So if I have that basically as something, a phrase I remember in the back of my head. What's that mean? Break that down. Okay. Yeah. So when I am you know, uh, prescribing any exercise to the people that I'm working with. I am saying that that is important to me. And that means I'm going to cue their rib cage position and pelvis position before I cue basically the movement of distal structures. And to me, that will allow them to move those distal, distal structures more effectively. So say for example, bench press, I'm going to say, Hey, get a long exhale. Hey, do you feel those abs set in? You feel those ribs move down, back and in, make sure, you know, they get a little tuck of their pelvis backs flat against the bench. And then I'll say, okay, now we can move through the reps uh, in our arms. So what would be, so that's the principle. Would the strategy be the cues that you then gave that athlete to accomplish that position? Yep. It would be the positions that I choose to put them in and the okay. cues that I give them throughout that exercise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, my, me saying that that's a strategy, um, to set that position versus maybe if I said, you know, extend your back, push your chest forward, that may be a strategy for something else, such as a, a power lifting sport. Totally. And to expand on this, cause I think Michelle and I get a lot of these questions on Instagram, but like people will see us doing a lot of elevating the feet for a bench press or for an incline bench press. So that's just a particular strategy to accomplish that goal. Like the, the principle is not that we should do everything with feet elevated, that that's a nonsense principle, but the principle mm -hmm. is that we want a good, clean kind of central canister position with a pelvis underneath a rib cage. And the means to get that would be elevating the feet. Very well said. 
So, okay. So we talked about principles. We talked about strategies. So let's just dive right into it. What is, what's your current operational model? What problems is it trying to solve? Uh, what goals is it ultimately trying to achieve? Perfect. So my model is working backwards from the word performance. So I have the word performance kind of up top and how I define that is uh, the action or process of carrying out or accomplishing a action, task, or function. So I can apply that to any context, whether I'm working with a division one athlete or a a 50 year old um, general population client, Um, whatever they want to accomplish is defined as performance or getting them somewhere where they want to accomplish. And I'm going to break that down into two kind of extremes. One is the word variation in which I use that to describe activities that are going to address barriers towards performance or something that is limiting them to reaching their performance goals. Um, And then I, on the other side of that is specificity. So that is the specific adaptation that I am trying to have that person acquire um, through the, you know, strategies and methods that I, that I pick. Break that Um, down. What would, what would be an example of each? Uh, So variation would be, uh, okay, so someone lacks hip flexion or shoulder flexion. I'll choose an exercise that the strategy is to provide them greater ranges of motion through that joint. And to me, by giving them more uh, flexion or range of motion through that joint, they'll be able to, you know, squat better, move more weight, and that will lead to better performance. Um, either on the on the field if they're an athlete or just better performance in a specific exercise that I want them to get better at. Okay. And then, and then, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, would that also take care of the, so you kind of have like variability and specificity as the primary offshoots, but that also take care of the specificity or would that look like a completely different set of principle and, and strategy? No, that's a good question. I think they can bleed into each other at some at some points because if I choose, you know, an exercise that's addressing a limitation, and I could also add to me, specificity is very uh, fitness quality based. So, like, am I adding speed to that exercise? Am I adding load to that exercise? Uh, am I adding duration to that exercise? Um, so. To me, variation is more movement-based and specificity is more fitness adaptation-based. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, yeah, very much so. Good. And I think specificity also falls in line with, you know, if someone's improving, it wants to improve running performance, well, we have to run. Um, we, have, we have to do things in that domain. Um, and then those two are going to bleed into skill, resistance, and diversification, or excuse me, skill, resistance, and diversification. So that Three is, separate things there, skill, comma, resistance, comma, diversification? Yeah. Okay. And so in each of the two primary elements, so um, variation and specificity, there's skill, resistance, and diversification in each, in, in those buckets. So Skill is, you know, acquiring a basic or advanced um, coordination or motor learning pattern. It's like involves teaching and learning new things, 
creating competency and confidence in what you're doing. And then resistance is, you know, I am applying resistance to maybe a movement pattern or movement skill um, in order to kind of get a better output or learn that skill uh, better. And that's, it's kind of, I feel like that's kind of what we are viewed in our roles is like we add, res we add resistance to things to improve them. Um, and then diversification is, you know, I want that person to be exposed to various types of positions, stances, and planes. And that is really focused on inputs into the system um, in order to get better outputs, if that makes sense. And on all those, in all these things, so those three boxes all fit into my training principles. And then I use basically that structure to pick, going back to we kind of define this of my strategies my methods, and then my execution. So how I coach those things, I have to follow through with making sure if I'm cueing a certain thing that that individual is performing it correctly. And then at the end, I want to say, I need to review those things with the right decisions. Did I get the outcomes that I wanted? Did I coach them correctly? And if not, I need to modify and adjust. And if so, then I can continue and progress. Okay. So as a visual representation, cause I've kind of been jotting this down as we go and I don't want people to be trying to do the same and crash their car, or, you know, drive <laughs> to a bridge or anything. So we have with your model performance at sort of the top of like a pyramid, right? Yeah. And then the layer underneath that we have specificity and variation that directly emanate from performance and then we have skill, resistance, and diversification that emanate from both specificity and variation. Yes. Is that fair to say? That's definitely fair to say. It seems to me that there's a little, so like activities that would promote more of that variation goal or variation principle probably would live more in like a, a like diversification land. Yeah, you could say that, but I think... Um, Bleeding over, I think diversification needs to be considered in, in both variation buckets. Like um, diversification is, you know, can I address those limitations that I am, you know, assessing or seeing, but can I also challenge that person in different planes, stances, and positions? Uh, so they basically need to show me or be exposed to all those all those types of things because you know, I can, I can stick someone in like a quote unquote sagittal plane position or um, exercise and still get those outcomes of maybe improving joint range of motion. But I want them to be exposed to, you know, all, all three of those uh, kind of classifications. And the same thing applies for a specificity. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to hold your feet to the fire a little bit here. Um, so we have this, this model, which is very elegant. And I think you spoke very well of it. And if you write it down on a piece of paper, it looks, it looks pretty goddamn pretty. Yeah. Um, so let's say you have, you're working with a new client, you're designing a program. You have a 16 year old female soccer athlete, 11 months removed from an ACL tear. She's medically cleared with everything. She's got full range of motion, no limitations from the physical therapist. This is your situation. 
you've explained your model. Talk us through how you would utilize this model to help that person. Perfect. So I would say, hey, what are we what are we working towards? And you said soccer player, right? So yep. you know, soccer performance or return to the soccer field. Um, so I would say in terms of limitations to performance, yeah, she needs to be exposed to higher intensity and force production situations through her, you know, now that she's been cleared through her rehab process and she needs to get back up to her conditioning level and basically repeatability. Uh, basically, can she, you know, repeat sprints at like 90% over and over? And that is included in variation. So it's not just lack of joint range of motion because, you know, I really prefer to stick in the fitness kind of domain. Um, well, that's variation or limitations can also be seen through you know, her conditioning quality, or maybe she's not as good. Her split squat is not as good as I would like it to be. Well, I would consider that a limitation as well. Maybe her change of direction abilities are uh, what I consider a limitation. So I'm going to take her through what I call an orientation session. I'm definitely going to do some change of direction drills, some running drills to see what she looks like, um, how efficient she is at it. I'm going to take her through gross movements and I'm going to say, Hey, what can she get better at? And those will fall into like my variation bucket specificity. That's going to fall into maybe testing that she has to perform when she goes back to school um, in the next two months or something like that and make sure we get really good at, at those things. And then, you know, through my programming, you know, I try to make sure that when I program my program templates are either structured in a way that leads me to making sure that like I check off the boxes of what skills she needs to develop, um, what skills she needs, you know, coordination training or resistance training through and am I diversifying her training? So I'm not just kind of, you know, pounding one thing into the ground or one plane of motion or one position. She's being exposed to various things so she can adapt through all, all situations. And then my training principles are what I really use to make sure that my uh, methods and strategies I'm selecting are fall under line with my values. You're welcome and for you, that tangent. <laughs> I don't think it was a tangent. I think it was right <laughs> on target. Can you give us an example of uh, how all of that would emanate with a specific exercise with specific sets and reps and cues? Ooh, that's a that's a that's a really good one. Um, yes, let's let's do this. Um, I would say, I think a change of direction may be a good example of this. So specificity. So if she has to do a 300 yard shuttle test, right, she's going to be doing 300 yard shuttle runs when she's with me. And that is specificity of how many times she has to change directions, what she has to run with. Uh, maybe variation as I'm assessing, well, she good at changing direction, those transitions. Um, what I found a lot is people who, um, the rate limiting second step in some of those shuttle runs are someone's ability to transition out of those turns quickly. So maybe I assess that that individual is really not good at loading in. So they plant their foot and they kind of fall off to the side and then they kind of have to sway their body back. And it's like, Oh gosh, she's 
I feel like I would just watch that in slow-mo. <laughs> so how, she needs to get better maybe at the skill of loading into a cut. So I have to be creative and say, you know, how can I isolate loading into a cut? Maybe how can I add resistance to that coordinated pattern to help her improve that? And then diversification, um, can she change directions in various types of ways? So can she change directions vertically and horizontally? Um, I wanna make sure she can do both. And I think that all that stuff is basically me selecting exercises that, you know, mimic, you know, loading into a cut. Maybe that is me, you know, adding a band resistance into her loading a cut. So she has to control out of it. And then maybe also adding, oh, can she change directions vertically up and down? Can she change directions um, very at a, like a lateral direction? So purely horizontal. And then we go back to, you know, can she do it um, in the task that's required of her? So in those shuttle runs. Specifically, specific exercise, specific sets, specific reps. Give me one. Um, I would say a split squat. So maybe a front foot elevated really weight shifted back, loading into that front hip, maybe the elbows forward for an anterior loaded position to really get like that canister between the hips and the ribs. Um, three sets of six. And then maybe she does a band resisted, you know, sidestep and pause. So she sidesteps, but she's band resisted. So she really has to sink into that hip that she's stepping into. And maybe she does three sets of six reps each following that. And that is resisting getting into the cut and she pauses. So she kind of holds that and gets used to that and then pushes herself out of it. Very cool. And that's all of those decisions would then emanate from the original framework that you laid out and then the principles that lay within that framework. Yeah. Yes. You are very good at asking questions, Tim. <laughs> I try. Um, okay. I think the other, the only other thing that I wanted to chat about in regards to your model or in, in regards to models in general, what do you do with new information that you acquire that seems to contradict what is in your model. And I think a lot about when a lot of us were coming up, like the FMS was kind of the show in town and the FML, the FMS is a model of sorts. Like it, you know, it, what it tries to do is be an injury, not prediction, but injury prevention model. And I think we can now recognize that it's incomplete in a lot of ways because there's new information and new ideas that have come to light. So how do you manage when you come into contact with a piece of information that you believe to be true that just seems to run counter to what your model says? No, oh, that's, that's, that's a great question. I think there's two parts of that. One would be, I think that your model and principles um, provide a filtering system for new information. And it, it really helps with learning because, you know, I can sit here and I can identify gaps or maybe limitations to my model and principles. And that will lead me to making sure that, you know, the next thing I learn about is in relation to those gaps. 
However, you know, if I am exposed to some new information that doesn't quite match up, I have to kind of ask myself, you know, is this better than what I currently do? Is it filling in gaps that I may have in my model? And then if the answer is yes, then I need to modify, include that information. If it's not, then it's an easy way to start excluding information because I think that's also an extremely important part of this. The second part of that answer would be the difference between concepts and methods. Um, so if anything, the FMS taught us the overall concept that we both definitely, I am speaking for you here, include in our models, and I'm making that assumption, is the importance of test-retest, right? That's a general concept that FMS kind of really gave us and pounded um, um, on us, and we still have to this day. So I can extract like an overall theme or importance from what that gave us. Now, that's different from the actual methods, the actual tests that they were doing. So like an inline lunch. Well, maybe I don't agree that that's testing, blah, blah, blah. I use my own way to address, you know, what they think they were looking at kind of a thing. So there's a difference between extracting concepts and methods. I think that's very well said. Can you think, and again, holding your feet to the fire, and we didn't have a conversation before about this, but can you think of... One idea that you've come across in the past, let's say two or three years that would not have fit within your model that you recognize the validity of and modified your model to include that concept. Oh, buddy, oh, buddy, oh, buddy. I wish there was and a I fire can just, in front of my feet. Ju just, to, just to buy you some time, because we're going to dive into my model in a couple of minutes. Like for me and people that know me personally and people that went to physical therapy school with me know that I was never the biggest fan of manual therapy for and getting okay. my patients better. Um, and yet I just kept seeing a lot of people have pretty dramatic improvements working with practitioners that were solely manual therapists that didn't know the first thing about positioning or exercise progression or movement skill. And I think the first couple of years of my career, there was a lot of ego that I had that said, no, movement and exercise are still the best way to do things. Don't worry about manual therapy. Just continue to get better at movement and exercise. But the more and more I was in this field, the more patients I work with, the more I started to realize the value of manual therapy. And then I had to make modifications to my model to account for the fact that manual therapy could be a very, very useful strategy to get people to where they want to be, to get people moving better, to get people out of pain. I like that. That was, that was a great example. Um, I would say maybe things that I have been exposed to that I didn't believe fit into my model. I don't know if this is going to be a really good example. I'm going to give you two. And this more falls in line with like schools of thought. Um, I think that I grew up in a strength conditioning realm that really valued heavy loading and, and more so in relation to the foundation of our field, which is really based out of the sports of Olympic lifting and powerlifting. And, you know, um, I think I was ingrained in school of more load, more load, arch your back, push out your butt when you squat, teaching people how to do that. You know, if you're not having a bar on your back or in your hands during a training session, you're not, you're not training. Um, what are you even doing? Yeah. What are you doing? And, you know, now that doesn't fall in line at all with my model. I think I've really turned the corner into, you know, 
anterior loading positions, but also, you know, I, I do acknowledge that something I, I personally struggle with is, is trying to remove some of those deep ingrained beliefs because, you know, I still enjoy lifting heavy weights and then I have to step back and I think, you know, there's a better way to do this or, you know, what is this going to cause later on and understanding the consequences of maybe some of those types of activities has been a huge, huge point in um, maybe changing what I do and not really including those things anymore in, in how I train or how I have other people train. Um, I think, I think that's an excellent example. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, yeah. I mean that, because that's a huge paradigm shift, right? Like yeah. I, I know you, like you and I have both been through that paradigm shift of, Oh, it turns out a barbell back squat isn't the thing and it's just going to fix everything. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just, I think that that's, I think that that's something that a lot of younger coaches need to hear. A lot of kind of fresh out of school, physical therapists need to hear and need to understand. Yeah. So think- you had a second one. Yeah, this one will be quick. And I would love to hear your opinion about this one. It's sure. like uh, extreme mobility positions. So probably before I got introduced to Posture Restoration Institute, you know, we would we would stretch and we would put ourselves in these extreme like hip forward positions to stretch the hip flexor or uh, gosh, Kelly Starrett book was big popular at this time. Becoming I'm... a supple leopard. <laughs> yeah, My whatever. Man. Um, you know, uh, trigger point activations and huge, huge exaggerations of joints positions to get mobility, quote unquote, back. Um, and then, you know, really getting exposed to Postural Restoration Institute, talking about like, you know, proximal position, the uh, positions of the bones um, relating to um, muscle sensations or muscle positions. And I completely changed like the way I think or, or, you know, how I try to value, um, quote unquote, like mobility kind of type of activities. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. I, I, you got me thinking about Kelly Sturette now. I love Kelly Sturette is the reason I became a physical therapist before I came across his work. Cause he was coming out with the mobility, the daily mobility wads on YouTube shot with like a fucking iPhone two back in 2009 and up until that point, I thought physical therapists were people that just kind of like walked elderly folks at nursing homes. <laughs> and then here was this dude, badass CrossFit coach, could do some amazing things with his own body mm-hmm. and was teaching people like how to assess and attempt to solve their own issues. And just such a good, such a good presenter, such good energy, such a good message that you should be in charge of your own body. I mean, that mm-hmm. I, I can get on my, my Kelly Sturette soapbox for hours. It just, Ooh. it, it really irritates me when people take umbrage with his specific tactics without looking at like what he's done for the field at large. Cause I think it's, yeah, I think it's profoundly important. Yeah. That, that's just so well said, because again, it goes back to concepts versus methods, right. And discerning certain qualities. Like if, if you can't appreciate all the great things that he's done, it's like, oh, man, can you do that with anything in your life? You know, can you appreciate yeah, it? Cause then you're just the <laughs> shitty human being who assumes yeah. that like a person is just an idea that they yes. had at one time. Yes. You can look back, you can look back at my Instagram three and a half years ago, and I can probably pick out three things that like, yeah, that was stupid. That was just a dumb fucking idea. Like, but I'm not, I I don't know. Moving on (laughs) anything in in closing out your model, anything else that you wish to say? Um, I'm sure at some point we could probably go over um, my principles like in detail. uh, But let's push that off to the side. I am fascinated and can't wait to hear about yours. 
I'm just give, give me a 30 second answer here. I'll start the timer. What is what's the relationship between your principles and your model? Do the principles emanate directly from the model or are they things that just sort of like live off to the side and guide decision making? Uh, the latter part of that. So I would say like the model gives me like a pathway or a process, like a step-by-step process to always like loop around like a cyclical process to kind of make sure I'm always questioning myself and, and diving into those points of performance. The principles that really uh, address my behavior and decision-making. So they could be uh, principles of a trainer, which is very like behavioral based, like how I want people to perceive me as a a person who I want to be as a coach. And then training principles were very focused on my exact values when it comes to physical training. So example, like training principles would be that example I gave before proximal position influences distal movement ability. So I am reflecting on that principle every time I prescribe an exercise. The next one would be Athletic skill acquisition includes the ability to transition from leg to leg. And that's going to influence a lot of my strategies and method selection. And then performance training is coordination training with resistance. And that really kind of is sucked out of that skill resistance diversification bucket. Um, and it really allows me to define and break down, you know, what a skill is, what an ability is. And then the exercise serves as a, a drill that's going to affect one of those. And it's my job to kind of add resistance in some ways, whatever that may be. It doesn't necessarily include load um, to those. And then my principles of a trainer. So directing my behavior is growth is experience in various types of hard work. So that kind of came out of like everyone perceiving hard work as being something like output, output driven, like physical. Right. And I want to make sure people understand that there is many types of hard work, like gratitude and humility is hard work. Um, Sensory kind of type of activities are just as hard work or, you know, work outside of the gym that affects the gym is hard work. Um, And then the last one, I know I can feel that timer burning. That's what's going on here is (laughs) reducing fear and addressing needs. So you know, reducing fear in terms of that's a D1 athlete returning from an injury. I want to make sure that they have extreme competency and confidence in taking a cut on the field of play. There's no fear in the movement they're about to uh, embark in. And then also general population clients. I, I kind of noticed when I dive into the private realm that, man, people are just so fearful of different movement patterns and kind of specific methods. Um, and then addressing needs, you know, making sure I'm taking into consideration, you know, psycho-emotional needs and physical needs. Awesome. Yeah. Extremely well said. Extremely thorough. You're so sweet. Let's, let's go, Tim. Let's go. Right <laughs> um, talking about my model. So Michelle's model, the primary goal is performance. And I think she did a great job at defining performance. The primary goal from my model, I'm a physical therapist. So it's trying to answer the question, why do I hurt? I being the client in front of me. So Michelle's model was kind of a pyramid that uh, skewed down one thing, two things, three things under those two things. Mine is just three circles that have a concentric overlap in the middle. And that overlap is the summation of does this person hurt or does this person not hurt? The, The three circles are overall motion availability, movement skill, and workload. And I can define those things, but 
I think right now, you know, in we're January 2021, that all of the injuries that I've seen throughout the course of my physical therapy career can be attributed to something that lives in one of those circles or the combination of those circles. And I do not attempt to be an expert or know everything that there is to know about any of those circles, but I think they, I, I think, mo I think all injuries fall under those domains. That is the model. Ask me some questions, my friend. I realized I was on mute and I was laughing and I was like, why is no one responding to me? <laughs> um, the sound of silent laughter. Yeah, it's the worst. Um, so I would say, well, why do I hurt? Like that's to me, it's like the biggest role, like a physical therapist, right? You have a specific kind of job. People come to you with like certain expectations. Um, and to me, it's like, not that you're at an elevated level, but it's almost like, you have very specific things that you need to take care of or address. And, and if you have like workload, movement skills, motor uh, movement, excuse me, gosh, motion availability in those three domains, well, how are you assessing? So take me through like your assessment process, because I think that really points out what you value. Sure. That's a fantastic question. So I think the best way to do this is via concrete example. So let's say, you know, 31 year old runner with chronic hip pain comes in to see me. Um, from a movement skill standpoint, they're a runner. I want to see them run. I want to see if it looks like skilled movement. From a motion availability standpoint, I want to see on a table what ranges of motion their hips have access to when they're not trying to do anything else, when they're as relaxed and as gravity lessened as possible. From a workload standpoint, I want to know what the prior year in terms of their training has looked like. And that's not only mileage, but that's intensity of running as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a whole different thing about the futility of quantifying mileage without attempting to quantify intensity as well. It's a different soapbox. Um, but I want to know what the past year has looked like. And then I want to know what the past four weeks has looked like and what the past one week has looked like. So what I'm trying to get at there is, you know, has there been a dramatic change in training habits that, that we haven't accounted for? Yeah. And at that point, is it like, you know, you're choosing like the lowest hanging fruit and like you're addressing that first and then being like, Hey, I'm, I'm going to assess did that fix anything? If not, okay, I chose the wrong bucket kind of a thing. Yeah, to a certain extent, it's like, you know, I, I, I know you and I have talked about this a lot, but like Pat Davidson's Outback Steakhouse example of if you go to the Outback Steakhouse and the server comes up and is like, hey, we have this great like, you know, vegan stir fry dish. Like, Get the fuck out of here. Like, this is Outback. I want a steak. I want a blooming onion. So I think people come to see me and the expectation is that I'm going to assess mobility, range of motion availability and give them an intervention that targets that. So almost always that that thing is going to happen. And almost always, like no one's rolling in here with perfect table tests with absolutely full hip IR, ER flexion, like free of compensatory patterns. So very often that is the, I'm hesitant to say that's the lowest hanging fruit because I do think, especially with runners, the skill of running is absolutely huge. And the ability to actually manage your training loads in, in an intelligent you know, sort of stepwise manner. Um, but they're probably going to get something that's range of motion oriented. And so again, to work on this example, chronic hip pain, let's say this runner presents with limited hip internal rotation. 
we're going to use that as a key performance indicator, as a test retest. By the way, shout out to Kelly Sturette for first turning me on to the test retest principle in 2009. Um, so I'm going to assess hip IR. I'm going to do something. I'm going to do an intervention. I'm going to employ a strategy and I'm going to recheck that hip internal rotation. But along with that, on day one, we might have a conversation about reducing the volume of their running to a level where they're no longer symptomatic or where they're minimally symptomatic. I love that. So, you know, I think one of the things I appreciate about you the most, and, you know, I've had experiences with many, many physical therapists um, of like only addressing, you know, table tests or, or low intensity activities, you know, making sure, or oh, does this person have little less pain, right? Oh, cool. They're good to go. Get off, get out, get on with your life. Or it's like you, it's like, oh, you know, if this person's a runner, like you want to make sure that their running is improving and you're remo- removing the barriers basically of that. And it's, you're also including that as something that you're highly valuing as assessing. And if, if I can, I'm just, you know, cause I, I don't think I've really ever put this model into spoken word or thought about it for like a large amount of time. I think there's directionality to these circles as well, because I think that range of motion availability is going to influence movement skill and movement skill is going to influence the ability to accumulate workload. Hmm. If I don't have hip flexion, then I can't get front side mechanics when I run. And if I can't get front side mechanics when I run, I'm not going to be able to run as much without hurting. Yeah. And I think what you do too is, you know, that directionality of it's almost like you're, you're taking what their performance is. So we'll say running like, right. And then you're categorizing it into like, you mentioned like front side mechanics and then, then it's diving deep into all, all these types of categories. So you're really breaking down like the performance of what they're, they're want to get better at. Um, a part of this is I think one of my biggest, you know, respects for physical therapists is their ability to really think on their feet, because I think you guys have so much pressure about like, you know, someone's coming to see you, you don't know what you're going to get. You do your assessments and then it's like, Oh, boom, go. You have to create an intervention. You have to find a strategy that's going to get an outcome on really think on your feet. Um, So take me through like a typical, you know, client session. Is there something that, you know, you kind of always go to and then work off from there? Or is it like, do you take some time, maybe like a few minutes and be like, okay, well, what am I seeing here? And then what am I going to do next? I feel like there's like, that's like a lot of pressure in some ways. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it, it definitely is. And I think doing what a lot of physical therapists want to ultimately do, which is working for yourself, you sort of need to deliver really early on in a plan of care. Like mm-hmm. if you, if you work in an insurance-based clinic and insurance has said, Hey, you get 25 visits with this person. And this person has a $0 copay. Like you can kind of fuck around for a while and just trial and error some things. But this is where like having that model and for me having those principles just becomes so huge. So we're not recording video on this podcast, but right behind me is a big old whiteboard. So a person walks in and I'm immediately writing things on the whiteboard that would fall under the, the umbrella of movement availability, movement skill, and workload management, as well as kind of subjective things that they're telling me. So already I'm constructing a literal visual representation on my whiteboard of all the causative factors that might be playing into their you know inability to run pain-free or do what they want pain-free. And then 
again, because I'm a physical therapist, I'm probably going to prescribe unexercise or do a manual therapy modality. A lot of times that's dry needling just because it's a lot of bang for, for, you know, it's a lot of bang for pretty minimal buck and time investment. Um, but then I also want to be doing something that gets at the movement skill or workload management realm. Cause in my mind, that's just stacking the deck in my favor even more and ensuring that in a week, they're going to be a fan of what we've done in that session. And I just don't think, I, I think, I think one could argue, well, you're never really going to know what gets a person better unless you only just change one variable at a time. And I think there have been times in my career where I believe that, but we're not, we're not running perfect scientific studies and we're Mm -hmm. just trying to get a result for a person. And like you said, man, I mean, that, that pressure is real. Like the worst feeling as a physical therapist is doing an activity with someone that you think is going to yield like a range of motion improvement. You get them on the table and it's nothing like, or, or they're worse. And then it's just like, you know, it's just visceral. (laughs) You, you start wondering, you start wondering like why you even do this. If you're in the right field, you know, you call your grandmother, you like apologize for shit you did when you were a kid. It's just, it it shakes you to your goddamn core. And that's why, you know, it's, it's important to be great. Like it's important to really believe that you're constantly trying to better yourself and that you can do something meaningful to impact that person in front of you. Yeah, 100%. One one of the things that you kind of remind me of, I think about all the time is, and what I think you include in your model in terms of like workload, and especially you when you integrate fitness and physical therapy, like you have this long term strategy of like preparing them for what's next. And I think a lot about like residual effects, um, and the difference between, you know, maintaining a quality and acquiring an equality. quality, excuse me. And so, we're not in the business of acquiring inequality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're at the more train, less pain podcast. <laughs> and I think we're, when we're addressing, you know, less pain, a lot of it is just, you know, acute, feel good, get rid of that pain as quickly as possible. But there's no like residual effects to that. You know, I go home, maybe the next day I wake up, same exact thing. And I think it's a skill and what's included in your model is how much residual effects can I get in this person of long lasting um, intervention strategies? Yeah, that's very well said. I kind of want to, I know we're coming up on, on the end here. I just kind of want to close things out with one question for young strength coaches out there who feel like they are doing things because that's the way that they learned them in school, or that's the way that they've always been done. What is one actionable piece of advice that you would give them in order to construct, start to construct their own model? Oh man, that's a really difficult thing because I think there are barriers in that one. You don't know enough to be able to construct something and maybe two, the academic system fails to provide you with a model of to follow. I think that's something that uh, the academic system should do. Um, I think you're going to f- always fall in line with accreditation in the academic system. Now I'm going off on a tangent of, you know, they are being accredited by some sort of institution. It's a lot of exercise science programs, it's the ACSM, or, you know, I went through a whole graduate, you know, two-year program, and all we followed was the CSCS book and the goal of taking the CSCS exam um, by the National so Science Exam. what does that person do? Um, seek out other people who differ 
in what they're learning in school. And I think what's extremely different than when I was in school is the access to social media and mentors that live across the country and people who are pro- providing free educational resources that are fantastic coaches, you know, such as like legends like Mike Robertson, you know, his, the content that he provides on his website is just astronomical. Um, He is a coach or the director of performance, I think at like IFAST. Um, Other people, um, I mean, we probably can list a few people off the top of our heads. I don't know. I'm having like a brain fart right now. Um, But people who are doing stuff different than what you're being exposed to and just being open-minded towards other types of um, schools of thought or the ways to do things. Oh, oh, and also like, you know, are you getting them better at doing something specific or at what they want to get better at? So, for example, you brought up the soccer player or, you know, what does a soccer player need to do to get better at, to be able to be a better athlete? Not just, Hey, is this person lifting more weight? You know what I mean? Like you have to be able to say like, what is, what am I doing? And what is that person getting better at? Because if you're just loading up a squat, they're betting at moving weight in a squat, but is that actually making them a better soccer player? So kind of be questioning the types of things that you're doing. Sorry. Totally. No, I, I think that's great. Also, shout out to Mike Robertson, biggest dead yes. mouse fan in the strength conditioning field. <laughs> oh, oh, I also want to message just, just this. I think this benefits audiences. And this is maybe a personal thing of mine. Of like one of my biggest pet peeves on podcasts is when people mention other people. And then I'm, I'm like, should I know who that person is? Like, am I <laughs> my buddy not Mike, Mike R. Yeah. Am I not in this like little world? Like, do I not get the inside joke? Right. And so <laughs> like, uh, to me, like, uh, let's define a few people. So Kelly Starrett is basically like in like the CrossFit realm. He's a physical therapist, puts out a lot of great content, um, kind of in that realm. He's mobility. His, his new project is the ready state and he posts Perfect. lots of Instagram. He's awesome. All right. You crush Bill Hartman. And then Pat Davison was a professor at Springfield college that I went to. Uh, he's big on social media now. Uh, he works at hype gym in New York city. Great trainer, great educational content. Bill Hartman, you go. He's, he's what would happen. Pat Davidson. If like a deadlift and a meatball had a love child and that love child had an IQ of 175. Yeah. If you want to imagine that. And, you know, like, again, like, I don't like talking about other people too much, but these are people who've had great influences on oh, us and we brilliant. have great respect for them. And hopefully, you know, I could only hope to have the same influence on other people. Absolutely. Um, Bill is a physical therapist that I fast. I have not ever met him in person. I've spoken to him uh, via video call a couple of times, but he's kind of the mentor to a lot of people I would consider mentors. Um, he's the one that kind of got me thinking about, you know, models in physical therapy and rethinking why we're doing things. And I credit people like Zach Couples, like Pete Cicinelli. Zach, you can find on Instagram. Um, but he's really, I think he's had a tremendous impact on a lot of up and coming physical therapists. Awesome. I thought that was a fantastic episode, but I am extremely biased. So I thank everyone for listening. And hopefully, you know, if you want to learn skills on how to make your own model and principles, please reach out to us on Instagram or send us an email or something like that. Um, you will get a message back. And I would love to have conversations with people about, you know, how do I actually make up my own principles or, or model? 
how do people find you on Instagram, Dr. Michelle Bolin? It's D-R-M-I-C-H-E-L-L-E-B-O-L-A-N-D. And I am Tim Richard DPT. Tim spelled the usual way, Richard R-I-C-H-A-R-D-T, one of those little underscore things and then and and then and then dpt cool all right thanks for listening everyone please check out the next episode and if you want to hear something specific about a topic again please send us a message we'd be glad to chat about anything that you want to hear and we will see you next time on the more train less pain podcast thank you for listening to the more train less pain podcast If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.